0: Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. You're home for Fortnite tips, tricks, glitches, and mods. Everything you need to know to help you pwn some noobs. What's a noob? I don't really know, it's the cool internet lingo.
1: Once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge hosted by two guys who've been friends since high school. Join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenagers, one album at a time. Hello, Thomas. How goes
0: it? Pretty good. How are you? Um, You know, I've had a really rough day. I've had to listen to this album again today to prepare for this. And uh, I'm just really glad on our 57th try that we're finally going to get past this album. I'm also
1: excited to move on from this, mostly just because it's taken us so long to finally get around to recording it. I don't dislike the album. I even at times enjoy the album, but I will say it's one where... It needs distance between listenings to be able to appreciate it each time.
0: Maybe so. I've just listened to it a lot every time we're supposed to record this, which is when way more than once every two weeks.
1: It has been longer than two weeks since we first decided to we were going to do this one, partially because you screwed up on the toad, but that's okay. I did.
0: That was my fault, and I will
1: apologize. Now, before we jump into tonight's album... From the Twilight Band. <laughs> 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 from Twilight's Muse. <laughs> Since last week, we started the episode by looking back to seeing if there was anything else to be said about the prior review. I wanted to go ahead and see if you had any other thoughts that you wanted to add about Nirvana's MTV Unplugged.
0: We're talking about that one again?
1: Well, I figured we started the last episode by talking <laughs> No, actually, I did realize that because, you know, you screwed up our Toad, when we went through the second time doing Toad, we completely forgot to mention the artwork and Dave McKean's contribution to Coil.
0: I don't remember talking about it on either account. We totally
1: discussed it the first time through.
0: Oh, that sounds believable.
1: Because I love Dave and I love his work. And he did a lot of great artwork in the 90s. And he did a lot of good cover artwork, albums and books. So uh, I wanted to make sure that What we... other things has he done? He did the cover artwork for Counting Crows This Desert Life. That is nice. He did all the cover artwork for Neil Gaiman's Sandman comic
0: series. This Desert Life was the fishbowl, right? Yes. The guy with the fishbowl head?
1: He also did the illustrations for the Neil Gaiman book the day I swapped my dad for two goldfish.
0: <laughs> That's funny. You know, now that I think about it, though, you can see a lot of similarities in there. Those two. There's like the distorted yellow background. The coloring is very similar. Well, yeah, yeah, those look very similar. Huh, interesting.
1: If there's anything that feels dated about Coil as an album, I think it is the artwork. Because Dave McKean was such a presence in the 90s and had such a aesthetic that became associated with so much. Not to say that he isn't still doing things or isn't still a capable artist, but...
0: Is he still doing things or a capable artist?
1: I don't believe he's dead. Okay. So I would say yes. Okay. Okay.
0: You know what had uninspired album cover artwork? What's that? Showbiz by Muse, the Twilight band.
1: (laughs) I have to point out, we're talking about Twilight, the movies. I want no confusion with the band Twilight Singers, who are incredible (laughs) and I love very, very much.
0: In all fairness, you also love Twilight, the book and movie series.
1: Never read the books, but yes, I have enjoyed all but the last of the Twilight movies. Thanks to the Mystery Science Theater guys and their podcast, Rift Tracks.
0: Rift Tracks is awesome. They did live tours of Rift Tracks. They did,
1: but they also riffed all the Twilight movies, which I have seen with my dear friend and soulmate, Alex. Rift Tracks has made it bearable.
0: Are you team Jacob or team Eddie? I'm team mustache dad. Not I that I want watch.
1: Mustache Dad to end up with his daughter, but picking a favorite character for, of the men in the
0: movies. Mustache Dad. Huh, there's a whole Teenage Mustache Dad. I didn't know there was a Teenage Mustache Dad. A whole, I'm sorry. Team, not teen. Sorry. Is it Charlie Swan? Yeah. Charlie Swan. Huh, okay.
1: Probably because of Riff tracks, because they refer to him as Mustache Dad.
0: Charlie Swan is played by Bill Burke, huh? What? Billy Burke plays oh. Charlie Swan billy burke was in that show zoo right i don't know okay we're going to an area of nerddom that does not fall into the category of once every two weeks right and whatever ridiculous intro we picked for this episode yes he was in fact the star of the show zoo i'm hmm. not familiar with zoo it's one of those we're on the precipice of post-apocalyptic society after all the animals start killing all the humans hmm. and he was on your favorite show uh gilmore girls i've never seen a full gilmore girls episode I've seen every episode of Gilmore Girls because I'm a man who was born between 1980 and 1994
1: who is married. I was about to add that qualifier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, the basics of Showbiz. It's an album by a band called Muse. It was the first album by a band called Muse. Their debut. It was released September 28th, 1999, on Maverick Records. Do you know who founded Maverick? Your dad? Close. Maverick was founded in 92 by Madonna.
0: Okay, a lot of stuff's coming into into Vision now. So not really
1: close guess at all. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Nope, Mr. Ricks has never reminded me in any way of Madonna. (laughs) Do I wish that Madonna was my dad? Hmm.
1: I will save the answer to that for therapy. (laughs) So... Muse are Matthew Bellamy on guitar, keys, vocals, Chris Wolstenholme on bass and backing vocals, and Dominic Howard on drums and percussion.
0: These are, in fact, all the band members of Muse. Um, (laughs) they, They got together originally back in 1994 in Devon, England. Like Toad the Wet
1: Sprocket. They formed in high school for a battle of the bands. Yep.
0: Unlike Toad the
1: Wet Sprocket, they won their battle of the bands.
0: And unlike Toad the Wet Sprocket, these guys fell stadiums to this day.
1: Too soon. Too soon, bro. What did Toad ever do to you?
0: <laughs> Not only did they win their battle of the bands, but didn't they break some of their instruments too? Trying to be cool.
1: Probably. That is what they do, and Matthew Bellamy does hold the record for most smash guitars on a tour.
0: Wow, that's something to hold on to, huh?
1: Hey, he's in the Guinness World Book, and I'm not, so.
0: What was their original name,
1: Mark? They played the Battle of the Bands under the moniker of Rocket Baby Dolls. Yeah. Winning the Battle of the Bands prompted them to take themselves a bit more seriously and decided that maybe they could be a real band and... Decided to get a real band name.
0: They went with Muse because it would look good on a poster.
1: Yep. It was nice and short. Just like Mark. I'm taller than you.
0: (laughs) I know. That's what makes it funny.
1: (laughs) Uh, Visual jokes with no visual cues. You're welcome, Internet.
0: So I'm just curious because I don't think anything in this... We don't see a lot of growth, in my opinion, from in Muse's music getting like deeper, evolving a lot. So, how how would you classify Muse's music? Since this is their first album, I don't think we necessarily
1: need to worry about growth. You're getting way ahead of ourselves. And since they didn't put out another album before 2000, we're never going to have to talk about them again. <laughs> Within the scope of Showbiz, I think it's one of those things where there's no just one singular label, but it is a combination of glam prog rock. I think is probably the best way to say it without just saying that they're trying to be Radiohead.
0: So when you're talking Radiohead, I did see somebody who there was some when I was doing research, somebody had said when you think about like the this band this album and what it showed as far as like potential for a band as opposed to actual quality. One of the albums they compared it to was Pablo Honey, and I can't agree with that.
1: I'm going to go off on of my first rant of the evening. There's going to be there's going to be a handful of these tonight, probably. You have bands when they start the good ones kind of establish like a sound to follow. There's like a natural order in the progression of the band. Sometimes bands change their sound along the way and start sounding different from where they started. And I see Muse is coming in and being inspired by Pablo Honey and continuing the sound of where Radiohead could have gone if Radio had continued to be a rock band rather than artists i don't think it's them trying to be pablo honey i think it's them using the foundation of pablo honey to build their own sound on and i think it's like i said the path that that if radiohead had wanted to be just dedicated rock band that pablo honey would have led them to in an album or two down the line researching this all of the reviews compare them to radiohead yep the one that really stuck out to me was the one from pitchfork because like they parallel radiohead but pitchfork does it in such a completely asinine way it reminded me of the, the the episode of the simpsons where homer becomes the food critic
0: yep 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 yep
1: and when he first starts he loves everything right yep until the other critics come around they're like you can't just write good things and then he just starts tearing everything apart for no reason And that's, in my opinion, Pitchfork's approach to album reviews, to music reviews. They want everything to be, like, groundbreaking and earth-shattering and so unique so they can be, you know, this pretentious gatekeeper of cool music. There's so much good music that they give terrible reviews to because they just have their heads up their own butts. The Pitchfork Review, it reads, The majority of young bands are unsure of what they truly want their band to be, aside from Famous. At least Muse also know they want to be Radiohead. (laughs) Now, I agree that, you know, Muse is trying to be Radiohead at this point. I don't disagree with that, but they go on. Matthew Bellamy's falsetto-laden yelps, which sounds so much like Tom York, it was inevitable after OK Computer that legions of teens would attempt to emulate... The irascible, uncomfortably serene, and canonized landmark. This isn't such a terrible ripple. Certainly copying Genius is commendable compared to copying Urban Dance Squad. Showbiz displays all the trademark promising first album pleasures and flaws. On one hand, you get less jaded zeal and direct songwriting. On the other hand, you get the predictable one-worded titles, lack of emotional depth, and AR fingerprints. 50% of Radiohead consists of adult resignation. Muse will have to wait to see where Radiohead goes before they can follow the footsteps. So they start off making a solid comparison for the two.
0: Uh, but I disagree with them. I disagree with but, part of that, though. Yeah, where they lose me is
1: saying that Muse is trying to copy because of the success of OK Computer. And at this point, OK Computer is so far from Pablo Honey. It's right. so far removed. The Bins is an anti-rock album. It's very slow. It's very soft. And it's an incredible album, but it's not a rock album. It's not. And OK Computer continues to not be rock. a rock album. Yep. And Radiohead at this point are no longer a rock band. And so saying that Muse is taking their inspiration from the success of OK Computer?
0: No, I agree. Matt's vocals and showbiz don't sound like Tom York on OK Computer. It sounds like Tom York from Pablo Honey, and even more so the the way Tom York sang the Bends. Yeah. By this time, we'd had Pablo Honey, we'd had the Bends, we'd had OK Computer, and Radiohead had 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 grown so much as a band across those three albums.
1: Additionally, they also had a handful of EPs, they did, and just different Correct. soundtracks, imports, B sides. And this was also going into the days of Napster where all of their live stuff. And at this point, they were doing a lot of road testing new material for whatever they were going to do next. And this was pre- Kid A. Kid A. This was pre-Kid A. Yep. And prior to releasing Kid A, Radiohead was at a point where they were seriously considering doing instead of a full album, a series of EP releases. So they were already looking at changing their own format because they are always constantly trying to test themselves and combat their fan base. I don't know what Napster was, Mark. Napster was some platform Uh, my older brothers used at college. (laughs) Regardless of why or how or why not, it sounds like... Or does not sound like Radiohead. There was a lot of comparison because Showbiz was recorded by producer John Leckie, who had produced a handful of fairly successful albums. He had produced pretty much for all of the Beatles' solo projects, except for Ringo Starr. He produced George Harrison, Plastic Ono Band, Paul McCartney, and Wings. Additionally, he, com- he produced a couple solo albums from Sid Barrett, a couple Pink Floyd records, including Wish You Were Here. He worked with Mott the Hopal, Simple Minds, The Fall, Stone Roses, Posies, The Verve, Elastica, Richard Ashcroft, Spiritualize, Dr. John, Cowboy Junkies, a long list of bands that did okay. But he also was the one who had produced a little album called The Bins.
0: I think we hear a lot of the influence of, from The Bins in this vocally.
1: He did produce Radiohead, but he only produced one of their albums. It's not like he was the guy who had produced all of Radiohead up to that point.
0: Well, I mean, if that's the case, then we could also say, oh, obviously Radiohead sounds too much. I like it's dabbling into Pink Floyd because he did some Pink Floyd stuff. I mean, that's just a that's that's not I don't I don't see that as a good comparison.
1: I agree with you completely. It's sloppy, quote unquote, journalism. As somebody who has a background in actual journalism, whenever I talk about music journalists, again, with the visual references that you can't see, I am literally right now doing finger quotes when I say journalists because I always do that when talking about music, quote unquote, journalists, because music journalism is generally a fairly lazy thing. And that's why we chose it for our podcast. <laughs> Because we, too, are lazy. We are lazy, lazy people. To be fair, John Lucky only produced half the album. Who produced the other half? Paul Reeve. And Paul Reeve is somebody who had been working with Muse prior to their debut. He had worked with them on a couple of EPs that came out before Showbiz. So he was familiar with the band. The band was familiar with him. He even does some backup vocal work on Showbiz.
0: So are we ready to start talking about Muse as a band yet? Yeah, I think we can. Uh, if you have a good segue.
1: Or if you just want to jump in. and
0: Matt Bellamy's a weirdo.
1: <laughs> Explain.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, the, the first thing I knew about, the first time, like I'd heard Muse, but the first time I heard Matt Bellamy was back in the early 20-aughts, maybe, I don't know. He came up somewhere on probably MySpace talking about being a conspiracy theorist and 9-11 stuff, and I remembered that about him. And then when I was researching this, he disavowed it and said that's not what he believes. But he sees a lot of it on the Internet. I'm like, dude, just stand by your convictions. If you believe it, believe it. Don't hame all around. He also dated Kate Hudson. So, you know, there's that.
1: I mean, even if you don't believe in the conspiracy itself, stand by the convictions like the guy who started the flat earth movement.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> like If it's what you believe or what you purport. Even if you don't actually believe it. At least have the conviction to stand by the movement. (laughs) Which brings me to my next point. The Earth is shaped like a velociraptor, and we've been lied to our entire lives. Turtles all the way down. No, I thought we were just on the turtle's back. I thought we were a velociraptor on the back of a turtle. I don't know. I can't keep track.
1: Right. And if you drill through the shell of the turtle whose back, we're on, what do you hit? Turtle. (laughs) Uh... Mostly I was just doing it as a Sturgill reference, because I love Sturgill.
0: Do you know who Dominic Howard, what celebrity he'd want to meet more than anybody else? Your mom? Also, a hint, he named his dog after the celebrity. He has a dog named Karen? <laughs> Close. Hendrix. Huh. okay. The drummer, or no. Dominic Howard is the drummer. No, I'm thinking Chris Wolstenholm, the guitarist. That's a fun name to say, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. He was in a post-punk band as a drummer before joining Muse. They were all in other bands when they came together. Yeah, I just think its he went from drums to guitar. It's kind of interesting.
1: Well, bass. Anyone can play bass. I mean, Charles used to play bass. Steve played bass. He did. Yep, he did. I miss Steve. To be fair, it's hard to be critical. I mean, it's easy to be critical, yes.
0: Challenge accepted on this podcast. <laughs>
1: But you've, you've got to remember, Bellamy met these guys in high school. They formed this band, and that's all they did. He doesn't have a college education. No. So it's easy to make fun of celebrities, because most of them aren't good with schooling.
0: Did you know that Bellamy's wife was in the Robin Thick video for Blurred Lines, one of the songs that makes me irrationally want to light things on fire?
1: No, I did not know that about bellamy's wife being in the video i also didn't know that about you setting things on fire but i'm not surprised but if you
0: listen to the song you get it (laughs) which is why i don't
1: listen to the song i as a young man within whichever demographic you quoted earlier do not have a wife so i have no reason to be exposed to that kind of music oh
0: my wife doesn't like it either have you ever seen muse live
1: i have not me neither I was introduced to them senior year by a kid in my astronomy class. We sat at the same table and we would talk music and had enough crossover and similarities in taste that, you know, I'd recommend stuff to him, he'd recommend stuff to me, and he. He'd recommended this album and a couple of others that I also enjoy or enjoy more than this one. But I remember picking this one up on his recommendation and I enjoyed it at the time because I got into it before Muse was Muse. This was just some small British band making big music. And I remember by the time in 2003, when they finally started to have success in the States, being like, oh, yeah, I remember these guys. They don't really sound like they're doing anything new, so I don't really need to pay attention now. I had also found a handful of other bands that had kind of found a way to to scratch the itch that Muse could fill. Like, there's another band called Ours. Ours. I'm always self-conscious when I pronounce it because it's O-U-R-S.
0: Yeah, but you're from Texas.
1: Ours. They have the kind of high falsetto at times, and they've got the theatricality to the music, and it's kind of dark, and it's kind of rock, and a little progressive. It's fantastic, and it kind of became the way that Showbiz was the follow-up to Pablo Honey. Distorted Lullabies became the follow-up to Showbiz.
0: Okay. Regardless of our criticisms, like I said, they don't really hit for me. We have to acknowledge the musical genius and the, the sheer talent of the band. I
1: don't mean to knock their talent or their abilities because they are talented and very, very incredibly capable musicians. Like I said, like after showbiz, I kind of drifted away to other things and didn't find anything that they were doing on their next couple of albums to like draw me in. And it wasn't until they had a song in like 2012, when I don't even know what album on, but they had a song called Madness that is probably my favorite Muse song. But it's funny because of all the comparison of Showbiz to Radiohead. I love Madness because how much it feels like U2's song Lemon. So once again, I fall into liking Muse when they sound like other people. (laughs) The guitar riff on that is straight up something The Edge
0: would do. Did you know Matt Bellamy and his wife live in Pete Sampras's old house? I did not know that. They did. They do. In Brentwood.
1: Okay. Does it have a tennis court? Oh, I'm sure it does. I would be
0: surprised if it did not. Unless it's one of those things like you don't bring work home. <laughs> <laughs> no, honey, you cannot play tennis
1: here. What I find interesting about the Muse timeline is your guys that met in high school. Yeah. So they formed in 94. Yep. Showbiz doesn't come out until 99. So that's the full five years that they're a band and they're playing and they're not putting music out. Yes. And that seems like a long time to be a band and claim you're in a band with nothing to show for it. Because actually putting stuff out is how you start making music. Money,
0: isn't that like 95% of bands in high school?
1: Every good high school band I knew had an album out while in high school. Everyone from Milkbone to the Murray Project had either a tape or a CD you could pop into your car and listen to. You could buy for
0: like five or ten bucks from somebody at launch. Yep, yep.
1: On the flip side, being older and being more familiar and involved with the business side of musicians, yeah, studio time is expensive. And musicians waste a lot of time and money in the studio. Okay. The most irresponsible thing I ever hear about musicians doing is writing in the studio. It's like, if you don't have material, don't book studio time.
0: Is that worse than
1: uh, snorting coke in the studio? If you're snorting coke in the studio, hopefully it's to keep you productive, right? It's to to keep you awake because you've been recording for, for 18 hours straight. And in order to be recording for 18 hours straight, you need to have stuff to record. So hopefully that means that you have a back catalog of songs that you and your band have practiced and already written. The one thing that waiting five years and spending five years as a band hold up in somebody's basement playing music is when they went to record showbiz, they had about 50 songs in the bag to choose from. And on their prior sessions with Paul Reeve, looking at what those EPs were going to be, they went through and acknowledged a handful of songs and a handful of songs from those EPs, then became songs on Showbiz as well. But it helped them sort through the 50 songs that they had, which is a good number of songs to draw from. Luckily for you,
0: we're not talking about 50 songs. No. We only have 12. And we start off with the 3 minutes and 54 seconds of Sunburn. Yep. Sunburn starts with an up-tempo arpeggio piano part,
1: followed by drums that sit a little low in the mix, has a nice background texture. Then Bellamy's vocals enter. They have a nice drawn-out tenor delivery that's slightly
0: hushed and, of course, full of, full of vibrato. My problem with Muse is some of it, be- it just gets to be so much that it almost becomes dissonant. So much what? So much of everything. There's just like this loud cacophony that comes out.
1: I'd argue that right from the start, it shows the large-scale dramatic ambition that they had
0: as a band— Oh, for sure. I mean, for a first album, for if you want to understand Muse too, like the, the origins of Muse and who Muse has become, this is a good first experience with Muse. And I think you hit on this before we started recording. You asked how much of my view of Muse is shaded by their body of work that they have now. Mm-hmm. And I have a really hard time just because of how similar their sound is separating this as its own thing outside of the rest of Muse's work. That's understandable. So, yeah.
1: I think I certainly got lucky that I was introduced to showbiz beforehand. I'm grateful for the fact that I'm on the opposite end of the Muse fence of you, whereas I came into this record, I liked this record, and then I moved past them, which is the opposite of every other Muse fan. And I know plenty of Muse fans who, because of this record, I have something to talk to them about and relate about, but at the same time, everyone wants to talk about the more advanced guitar work on all these other albums, and I'm just like, but I like Showbiz because it sounds like Radiohead. (laughs) 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 Anyway... I think I'm lucky in that sense. There's a handful of bands that I think I've gotten lucky with. Some 41 is another one who their very first album, Half Hour of Power, I picked up because it was like six bucks at Target. And it's so just fun and immature. And I loved it. And then I had a hard time getting into them once they put out other albums that got radio play.
0: Yeah, their young music had a feel of like early blink to me. Absolutely. So Sunburn. It's interesting
1: that at this point, like, you're kind of already rolling your eyes at the Muse sound, because right now it's just piano, vocals, and drums. Yeah, because the full band doesn't even enter until off to the one-minute mark. They rock out for a bit, the guitar starts to double the pianos around 120-ish. Around 2.15 as a full band, since they're finally playing as a full band, there begins a soaring, screeching, piercing guitar solo. It's very reminiscent of Radiohead's solo around the three-minute mark of their song, Just Take That Pitchfork. I will actually cite my work. This guitar solo that's very similar to the solo from Just, this builds to the climax of the full band on display with Bellamy fully letting loose with his own vocals sweeping up and down and all over the place and just going nuts with little control. Again, for the first song, for the opening song of a first album with a brand new band that nobody's heard before, it's ambitious in scale and scope. And while to you you kind of roll your eyes at how Muse it is, yeah. I think that goes to support how great of a choice it is as the introductory showcase of the skill of such young players that would become the foundation of the band Muse.
0: That's fair. That's the other thing I have to remember when I'm when I'm judging this is you know, this is 20-year-old muse, not... Right. This is an old man muse. This is young this muse or something news, to prove. Yeah. They know whatever they release as a single is going get, to get major radio play, right? Fun Story
1: says nothing to do with Sunburn, the song itself. But prior to recording the album, they had enough of, like, a word of mouth that they were brought over to the States, played for... What used to be the big festival that was what all the college and independent stations would look towards to find new talent. So they played this festival for all these stations. They performed for a handful of record execs, just trying to find people to put out their first album, or at least people to give the money to make their first album. Before they found Maverick Records, they played for Rick Rubin. They did a show also, like Toad the Wet Sprocket, for the head of Columbia Records, Mm -hmm. who passed on Muse. Strike two, Columbia Records. I don't know if it was the same head of Columbia Records at the time, but it makes the story feel
0: better if it is.
1: And then they played the up-and-coming futures stage of Woodstock 99.: Nice. the mega-successful festival that that was that people <laughs> entirely <laughs> take seriously.: in. So they were young, they were ambitious, and I think Sunburn was a good example of these new kids on the block flexing their
0: muscles.: Speaking of muscles, how do we feel about a museum to muscles?
1: Well, this album did come out over 20 years ago, so it would make sense that you could see this as a Muscle Museum.
0: Yes, Muscle Museum, the 4 minute and 23 second, fairly iconic song for Muse. It's track two and starts with a simple
1: bass part that sounds like Wolston Home is doing an imitation of a car alarm or some sort
0: of emergency vehicle siren. This album feels like a little cart before the horse to me, or this song does. Since they're they're dealing with the issues of being an up-and-coming band that's getting popular, uh, it just feels very aspirational as a song on a first album.
1: Is that what's happening with the lyrics? Yes. Because to tell you the truth, I don't know if I bother really listening to what any of the lyrics are actually saying at any point on any of this album. Well... I think Bellamy's just up and down vocally with everything, and it fits with what he's doing and what the band's doing
0: musically, and so it's kind of like... Maybe that's another problem I have with it, is everything just kind of goes together, like there's no... It's it's too polished. It's not punk rock. Yeah, he has lines in here like, and I don't want you to adore me, don't want you to ignore me when it pleases you, I'll do it on my own. I don't know.
1: Well, then it's a good thing I don't look at the lyrics. One of us has to. You are sponsored by Lyric Genius. We are. Which brings us to our, oh, no. our sponsorship. You. Lyric Genius. Lyric Genius. You are sponsored by Lyric Genius. I claim no affiliation. <laughs> anyway, much of the song is just carried along by that siren bass part. And then the drums and Bellamy's vocals. Although there are a couple of distinct parts where the guitar is interspersed. It's interesting because throughout, it's not that the guitar is carrying a single melody. Yeah. It's not not a verse-chorus-verse. It's just sporadic guitar, and there's three or four distinct licks that it does that it just alternates between, and it doesn't bridge. It just plays one, stops, car alarm, guitar comes back in, stops, car alarm, different guitar, car alarm, and I think that was meant for dramatic effect. I don't know what it was meant for. People love it, though.
0: Especially people named Philip. Philip runs for about four minutes and one second. Philip with an F. This is an extremely
1: guitar-heavy song. I'd say it's arguably the most commercial and pop-friendly rock song on showbiz.
0: Is that why you don't like it as much as other stuff? I never said that on record.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Now, on this one, the vocals do seem to live on the lower end of Bellamy's register. Not to say he doesn't take things up at times, but when he does on this one, it actually does seem more deliberate, and he actually does seem in control of how and when he uses the falsetto than usual. I can agree with that. It's not just him going up and then falling down. Wow, we are rushing through these songs. Falling Down, track four. Falling Down is the first big swing and pace of showbiz, and it slows things way down. And this is the first time that I'll um I mean, I, I know I made the comparison on that opening guitar solo to, to Just, but this is really where it does kind of have a feel like The Bins, because this one, it slows down, kind of goes for like a sleepier pace and it feels much more in the same vein as fake plastic trees or bulletproof
0: agreed this feels less like the rest of the album just how chill it is Mm -hmm. but i think that's why i like it i think this may be if not my favorite it's one of my favorites on the album okay but i don't know that it would sound that great if they played it in a cave
1: well not many things sound good in a cave Especially when, despite such a low tempo and subdued instrumentation, Matt is still finding ways to switch from high light notes to extended fits of screaming mid-range. But Cave, the song, track 5, does pick the tempo back up with what yeah. could easily be guitar tones and a lead riff that was left over from Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood is the guitarist of Radiohead. I know. I just don't have anything
0: to add to this. Okay. But I like that we're whispering.
1: I wasn't sure if I was filling you in on the secret or the audience, just for anyone out I think, there. I
0: think it was the audience. I think it was the just audience. Just for anyone out
1: there who's who's unaware. Now, despite this being taken from the Johnny Greenwood playbook, the drums and bass hit harder than any Radiohead. And there's a nice underlying keyboard part on this one, especially, that serves to me as a personal reminder that I don't spend enough time listening to the band Kofax. And if you don't know Kofax, Kofax is a wonderful band. Their first two albums, it had to do with Love and Social Life, were both very piano-driven indie rock, and they're great albums.
0: Very cool. They don't like playing Cave, and the last time it was performed live was in 2010. Wow. Yeah, they got tired of playing it. According to MuseWiki.org. Just since we're now citing things and pretending to be journalists, air quotes. <laughs> um I don't know if I don't know if, if it is an unintended thing to not play it, but Oh no, I skipped one, never mind. But that's showbiz. That is Showbiz, the title track.
1: Track six. Showbiz starts with a simple, steady drum beat on a single tom joined by a simple single string bass rhythm. The vocals enter around 30 seconds and are joined by an equally simple guitar part. The bass and drums drop out at about 50 seconds, leaving the guitar and vocals. And the guitar then slowly expands and it builds and the bass and drums reenter. And finally, at around one forty-five, the instruments are all fully playing, using multiple strings, using all the drums, and it becomes just like a real song.
0: It slaps, I think as the kids say these days.
1: It's a good one. It's in my top three on this album. It's the title track, so I would hope it would be good enough to be deserving of... You would hope it would bop. ...being the title track. This is the one that I will roll back my statement on lyrics and say this is the one song that I did read the lyrics of. And the lyrics are pretty simple and pretty straightforward like the other one that you cited as far as them talking about becoming involved in this machine that is show business. Controlling my feelings for too long, forcing our darkest souls to unfold, pushing us into self-destruction. So apparently he's happy that they have their record deal. They make me dream your dreams. They make me scream your screams. Trying to please you for too long. Visions of greed. You wallow. That's essentially it. Everything is just repeated 30 times each. And so it's, it's obviously a good, happy message about... The machine that is the music industry, or fame, or whatever you want to call it.
0: Show business is is no business. Mm,
1: I don't think that's a saying. (laughs) I don't either. Does uh, Lyric Genius have any good interpretations on this one?
0: Let me look. I don't know. We haven't turned to them yet. Hold, please. (laughs) According to Matt, Unintended was one of the two songs of which words came first instead of music. Uh, The only comment is from six. You're on unintended.
1: I was quoting showbiz.
0: Oh, crap. I did it again. (laughs) All right. Let's go to showbiz. (laughs) Sina Kisharva says, uh, nothing is more satisfying than Matt screams. Wilbro 31 says, S-H-I-T, this song is insane.
1: Wow. All right, now we will intentionally move on to the song Tom's unintentionally been trying to get to for the last five minutes.
0: Unintended. Track
1: seven. This slows things down again. And finally, seven tracks in introduces us to Muse using an acoustic guitar. It has a nice lullaby quality to it, It's full of extra little bits of texture that make it feel like this one especially could be a B-side from OK Computer.
0: Maybe a Seaside?
1: Yeah. You had one job.
0: Well, What did I do?
1: I was just trying to give you a good thing to segue into Uno. Dos, tres. And you ruined it.
0: Insert segue here. Uno, runtime 339.
1: Are you sure there wasn't anything else you wanted to say about Unintended? Or did you get it all out while we were talking about
0: Showbiz? I think we got it all out while we was playing Showbiz. Okay. But we can move on to Uno, which was their numero uno single from this album.
1: This, I felt, was a bold choice for such a young band. I think through the lyrics and the sonic palette that they established with the instrumentation, Muse somehow managed to perfectly capture the full essence of the card game Uno in song form.
0: Okay. Explain. No. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. Thanks for being a dick and not playing up the joke.
0: I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I like watching you fall on your face, Mark.
1: I am well aware. Well aware of that one. Uno does open with a full minute of distortion and guitar feedback before breaking into a sort of low-key lounge tango, which, unless you have anything else... Nothing. ...dances us into track number nine, Sober.
0: This is not my favorite Sober song.
1: It's not your favorite song named Sober? Sober know my entire notes on the song are dedicated to to this point i understand that within the english language there is a finite amount of words and sometimes a word or phrase gets used and attached to another piece of work That ends up being so successful that it should just be left alone. It's like retiring a number in sports, right?
0: Yeah. When you've got a good song, people shouldn't keep doing it, right? No one will ever write
1: another song named Sober that will ever come close to touching Tool. Nope. So why do that to yourself? This is still the 90s. Tool is still relevant. Yep. They haven't taken, like, their incredible hiatus between albums. Tool was still huge in '99. And Sober is the best song of their catalog. Mm, disagree on. We aren't all such big fans of Hookers with Penises.
0: Also not my favorite. What is your favorite? My favorite tool? Your favorite tool song? Probably Anima. Okay. Some say the end is near. Some say we'll see Armageddon soon. Certainly hope we will. Okay. Learn to swim, Mark. Learn to swim. Yeah.
1: They have a lot of great stuff on that album. They do. But I think Sober is the tool what Losing My Religion is to REM. Okay. They have plenty of other great songs, plenty of other great albums, but that could serve if you need one song to stand alone from their catalog.
0: I sure could use a vacation from this.
1: Now, Sober itself, the song from the band Muse, who is trying to sound like Radiohead, Their Sober isn't necessarily a bad song. It's even the only song on the album so far that could give Philip a run for its money with regards to being a solid rock song that maintains its pop sensibilities. But your mind went to one place, and it was the same place that my mind went to first. Of course, I did. We're kids of the 90s. And the fact that that's still all that we're talking about just, I think, supports the point. Yep. Is this a good song? Who knows? It could have been called almost anything, literally anything else. And then the song, standing on its own legs, would be getting our full and undivided attention that it probably deserves. But instead, we're
0: just going to gloss over it. And we'll just spiral into some static. I would rather make our escape to track 10. Did we skip? I have the list here differently, I guess. Okay. Let's escape this conversation and go to track 10. So the the reason for your
1: confusion is because we're reviewing the U.S. release of oh, gotcha. Showbiz. Showbiz, when it came out, the U.S. release was September 28th of 99. By that point, there had been other releases in other countries around the world. The U.K. release was earlier in the month, and some of the other releases included a an additional song called spiral static and depending on the release that you you have it also falls at different places in the album but it is not on the u.s release
0: so you don't gotta worry about it then let's just escape this conversation and move on to the next one escape
1: escape once again slows things way down it's a nice ballad that lets us let's the listener lets them the band lets everyone catch our breath at least for a minute five before the volume turns up and the full band comes crashing in with bellamy yelling over everything Despite Bellamy's theatrical vocals, it still keeps a slow tempo from that first minute. So it creates an interesting juxtaposition of the relaxed ballad played with full rock power.
0: This song also features a lot of teen angst from a young Matt throughout the song. Right.
1: And this was written in their teenage years and recorded when they were all 1920s, so that
0: is perfectly he's, understandable. He's angry, yeah. We were, we were all angry back in the day, if I remember correctly. He's angry that
1: nobody paid attention to sober.
0: <laughs> he's angry that all we could think of is tool. This song was originally called Escape Your Madness and was, yes, in fact, uh, about Matt's parents divorcing and his self-blame. Looking at the lyrics now for the first time, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I really like You Bully From a Distance. I still take all the blame because you and me are both one and the same. It's driving me mad. Oof. It's a tough song, man. Yeah.
1: This one uh, actually
0: kind of hits a little deep. Right? Kind of hits you when you are uh, a child of divorce.
1: Makes me wish that maybe I'd paid attention to the lyrics before now. I'd say me finally reading the lyrics is overdue.
0: It is, it is. This song reminds me a lot of Philip.
1: At this point in the album, we are pretty much just turned into a seesaw. It goes back and forth between the slow songs and back to then Muses' familiar brand of Radiohead adjacent rock. Yeah. In my notes. This, this is me reading my notes, how I wrote them. They're not really doing anything new. Or anything that's going to regain the attention Tom lost two to three songs ago?
0: (laughs) I listened to the whole thing multiple times. And I broke up and listened to it a lot.
1: Breaking it up into small bits is a good choice. You did the right thing there. They're not really exploring new ground anymore. At this point, we're 11 songs into showbiz, and Muse have shown us who they are, what they're capable of. And as we're winding the album down, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Listening to it with the full scope of being familiar enough with Muse to say, oh, it just sounds like another Muse song. It's a bit of a cop-out, but it shows that they, as a band, have been good at managing expectations and establishing what... The Muse boxes, right? Yeah. At this point, you know what to expect from the future, and now that we're in the future, looking back, we can say, "Yep, it's just another Muse song." Yep. I definitely
0: don't think we're making our way to heading on a high
1: note. That's fine because, as Bellamy says, "Hate this and I'll love you." Hate this and I love you is track twelve. It's the final track on the album. This is an extremely ADD song. This one sees us seesawing back to the Muse power ballad. And it continues with the previous tracks establishing the Muse box, as it were. And in this case, establishing themselves as a parallel universe radiohead of rock. Yeah. And I still have no problem with that being the underlying identity of showbiz. Yeah. Yeah love it or hate it looking back on it now regardless of what you think about it the talent and skill that's on display here the fact that it took two more albums before they finally started to gain traction and a following in the US is kind of surprising yeah it really is I know that there's Muse devotees out there who aren't going to play showbiz at the top of the Muse discography, and it doesn't belong there probably I don't know I'm not familiar with the rest of their records to say one way or the other and I'm not a big enough fan to care nope but as I've, been, as I've been listening to this album, the final thoughts, kind of the wrap-up that I keep coming to, is I think about this conversation that I had with my buddy Terrence years ago in the early aughts we're talking about like the modern prog resurgence that was happening you had a lot of bands Mars Volta Coheed and a lot of that and Terrence who is one of my favorite guitar players I love him and I love how he plays and a lot of that is the influence from similar 90s bands that we love he plays like I wish I could play but we kind of were butting heads and specifically butting heads over Coheed because I love Coheed and he didn't really get into it but his point about that whole kind of movement was that there's too many notes and at a point it becomes masturbatory and i don't necessarily agree with him with the reference to coheed i love coheed because of all their notes but i can see with a band like the band that muse becomes how at a point their quest for guitar god status tries to becomes becomes driven by this internal thing that yeah is more about becoming a guitar god than is about making good, sensible Radiohead rip-off music. But showbiz, at least for now, it walks that line of far-reaching ambition mixed with talent while maintaining pop sensibilities without crossing into overly self-serving show-off any more than
0: any reasonable rock guitarist should. I might say that their guitar playing becomes shallow and pedantic, and it insists upon itself
1: on this album or later for now they at least keep it reined in enough maybe it's because they weren't quite there yet skill wise maybe it's just because they were trying to just get a foot in the door regardless of what it is i think they managed to walk that line with showbiz
0: And is this, can we, can we not talk about showbiz again now? Do I not have to listen to it anymore?
1: Well, this is the last time that once every two weeks we'll be reviewing showbiz, but we can talk about it all you want. But can we stop talking about it now? We spent half of Toad the Wet Sprocket talking about Alien Ant Farm, so apparently we can do anything.
0: We can, we can. We also didn't make reference to the fact that this came out two years before Alien Ant Farm's Smooth Criminal release. Right.
1: To be fair, that was the bit that we, you know, beat into the ground with
0: the toad. If there's one thing you should and, know about me... And we don't need to bring it back. If there's one thing you know about me, Mark, I have no problem beating a dead horse well past time.
1: As much as I disliked Pitchfork's just stupid review of this album, I think that Rolling Stone gave a surprisingly reasonable review. what they have to say about it? Muse approach their work like opera. From their love of huge song structures to lead singer Matt Bellamy's soprano arias, between that and the fact that muse are guided by John Leckie, producer of The Bins, it's easy to dismiss them as talented Radiohead clones. Their debut showbiz matches Tom York's penchant for majestic agony, screams, and the word self-destruction pepper the title track, but with an edge that's quirkier and decidedly more ragged than their elders. Showbiz is no maverick masterstroke, but it is passionate and loud and also unexpectedly gentle.
0: That sounds oddly reasonable from Rolling Stone.
1: For a debut album, that's about as good as you can hope for. So for your consideration, Muses, Showbiz. What do we got next week, Mark? Before we get into next week, let's talk about Tom's three favorite tracks from this album.
0: Oh, jeez. I don't know that I have them. You seemed pretty pretty confident about one, at least. I did. I liked Cave. Uh, let me work on my top three. Okay. You know, you would think after three episodes, I would remember that we have to discuss our top three every time. <laughs> no, Mark wouldn't. Mark <laughs> wouldn't expect that from me at all. <laughs> uh, please. It's a lot easier when it's an album I've listened to a lot by choice because I like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And
1: I recognize that as we go through here, there's probably going to be more of these that are things that I've spent more time with than you. But that's kind of why I want to get into something like Razorblade Suitcase more than 16 Stone is because I know that was one that you got into a lot more than I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm excited for an album like that because I want to really get into digging into your perspective. I'm really
0: excited to dig into albums that i didn't love so much at first but then became hugely influential in my life like we're not doing backstreet boys like you prefer an astronaut no i like backstreet boys from day one remember um like you prefer an astronaut which is one of my favorite albums of all times but i think i harassed you a lot about it early on
1: probably p.s you're welcome (laughs) Okay. Well, while you are considering yours, this one, it feels like the order doesn't matter as much as on others. It's like, these are the three that were like the most tolerable, the three standouts. But for the sake of ranking, number three is Sunburn. Number two for me was Unintended.
0: And number one is Showbiz. I think for me, my three are going to be Cave, Unintended, and probably Showbiz. So two out of the three we agree on. I could have sworn you had said when, on Philip oh, that
1: Philip was one of you. I
0: did like Philip, but I think I am going to pass. I liked the slowness of it. I liked the connection and the direction it went. But I'm not going to say it's one of my top three, I think, after further consideration. Those are the reasons that I picked Unintended.
1: Yeah. Being one that actually sounded like The Bins as opposed to the rest of it being that Pablo Honey Rock I love so much.
0: Yeah. So we have finally finished Muse, Mark.
1: All right. So to answer your earlier question, next episode, we are going to be doing white light, white heat, white trash by social distortion.
0: Oh, I'm so excited.
1: That's that's what we agreed on, right?
0: That is what we agreed on. Okay. I am excited. It's going to be fun.
1: It is because Mike Ness is not an up and coming guitar. God, he's not. And I still love him for entirely different reasons, and I'm looking forward to uh, figuring out what I'm going to say. It's an album I'm incredibly familiar with, but as I've been thinking about it, and I've already started listening to it, I think maybe the the format for my reviews are going to be a little different.
0: This one I've been thinking a lot about and listening to already. It landed at the right time in my life to speak to me about the right circumstances I felt I was in. Yep. It's a solid album. I think it's going to be our best episode yet, to be perfectly honest with you. And we get to discuss who would win, Mike Ness or Henry Rollins? In what? In a fight.
1: I don't know if we really need to go there, because I-, I love both. Plus, it's a completely mute point, because Danzig would step in and break it up. <laughs> All right, and with that giggle, this has been Once Every, Every Two Weeks. Weeks. Once Every Two Weeks is sponsored in part by The Geek Lounge and Burro Baracho Records.